Good morning to each and every one of you here this morning. It's certainly good to be in the house of the Lord and to worship together again this morning. <clears throat> As you are aware, the last six weeks we have been considering various aspects of what it means to be disciple and making disciples of Jesus Christ. I, in looking back and also based on feedback from Ivan and Nate as well as my own thoughts, we have only scratched the surface of this, of this big topic or this big subject of, of what it is to become and develop faithful disciples of Jesus Christ because it's a lifelong endeavor that is going to require our unconditional commitment. <clears throat> the one thing that strikes me is that to isolate discipleship to those certain areas of our life that we're comfortable with is really a form of betrayal to our master, to our teacher, because that's not what he wants. Discipleship is a comprehensive surrender of our ambitions for the purpose of doing only what our teacher, the rabbi, our Lord Jesus Christ, desires. It's, it's all about him. It's not about me. We've looked at um, the call of being disciples. I apologize. That's a little bit hard to read this morning. It's, it's darker. Um, the call of, to being disciples, the cost of discipleship, the disciplines of a disciple, the heart of a disciple, the call to make disciples and investing in others. And this morning, I want to look at the idea of maturing disciples. And that may not be real descriptive right now, but I think you'll understand as we go along. <clears throat> Maturing or mature. Now, there's a drastic difference between maturing disciples and mature disciples. Maturing indicates there's an ongoing prog process. It's movement towards maturity, whereas being mature would indicate more of a destination or that we have arrived or that there is an end point, that there's a completion of, of reaching that. And I don't believe that that's at all the way it is. Uh, I have here a couple of lines here, time down here, and the level of maturity here. I don't know that I know of any believer, personally, who would say that they are now mature. They are more mature, but they're, they would not say that they're mature. Rather, as disciples of Jesus Christ grow, as we realize our own deficiencies compared to our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, we always want to become more like Him. And maturing disciples are not lethargic or declining. Uh, maturing disciples and those that are around them that see them can see real change in their lives. There, over time, there will be increased maturity. For example, the fruit of the Spirit will be more bountiful and sweeter in the life 
of those that are maturing. The love for God and others will permeate their lives. Our ambitions and priorities will reflect the character of Jesus Christ. Maturing disciples see that there is transformation and happening, and that transformation has happened in their own lives compared to last month or last year or 10 years ago. And there's no such thing as stagnation for a believer. To cease to grow and to cease to mature is to begin to die. And uh, so there really is no leveling off of maturity. If we level off, we're going to start to decline. And there certainly are differing uh, rates of maturity that believers can experience. We don't all mature or grow at the same rate. But the key is the direction that we're moving. To start off with this morning, I'd like for us to think about several underlying traits of a maturing Christian or a maturing disciple of Jesus Christ. The first is we, that we have a heart that desires to grow. <clears throat> but grow in, great, in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. There has to be a desire within us to want to grow if we're, going to, if we're going to grow, if we're going to mature, if we're going to move toward maturity. And then the second aspect is that of walking in truth. We have to have a heart that wants to walk in truth. 3 John, verses 2 through 4. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. So as, so it, I'm sorry, as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This last verse is often referred to as parents about their own children, and rightfully so. But the context here is a church leader seeing other believers walking in truth. That is what is important. So we need to have a heart that wants to grow, and we have to have a heart that wants to walk in truth, and that is walking in truth. This morning I've identified five characteristics that I believe are evidenced in maturing believers. And while I came up with five, I will be very quick to say that this is not comprehensive, and it's the five that came to my mind uh, as the Holy Spirit led me to these five areas. I will also say that we're going to be covering quite a bit of Scripture this morning, and I would encourage you to write down some of these these passages of Scripture and think about them after we, go, uh, after we get done here because I'm only going to be able to highlight a few things and there is so much more in these Scriptures that ought to be thought about and considered. These five characteristics, I believe, will be evidenced in varying degrees within every believer's life. 
Not all disciples are going to mature at the same rate or in exactly the same ways, and some may be more mature in some of these areas than in others. But there should be evidence of these. And the main thing is that there is ongoing growth and a becoming more like Jesus Christ as we live our lives from day to day, year to year, that there ought to be a evidence of something different. The first one is that maturing disciples love God. This is pretty self-evident in many ways, but also I feel so foundational. Jesus speaking in Mark 5, uh, Mark 12, and again, I apologize for how dark that is. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The first commandment, loving God first and with our entire heart, our entire soul, our entire mind, and our entire strength. That is, this really is the first characteristic of a maturing disciple. We will not grow, we will not mature if we do not love God with everything within us, with our whole being, just from the deepest corners of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our whole being. It doesn't matter whether we say we love God because He knows exactly whether we do or we don't. He knows what we really love. And so I believe this, it, just coming back to this, and this would have been key for any of the other sermons that we talked about, uh, preached so far as well, but genuinely loving God with everything we have is a baseline requirement for discipleship, for a disciple to grow toward maturity. Just a couple of other aspects that I also want to consider in, in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This doesn't say talk about loving God, but it says just as you received Jesus Christ the Lord. If we have received Him, if we love Him, we will walk in Him, and we will be rooted and built up in Him. And that is what, what, he, what he wants for us, and that is uh, so important to have our roots established and, and to be built up in him. 
In 2 Timothy, there's, uh, I'd like to read the first part, first seven verses of this, and um, there's a bunch of different angles that we could take on this, but I, I want to focus on two particular areas here. Paul here is writing to a young pastor, and he gives several analogies here, and I think that this is analogies of what maturing disciples may look like as well. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, that what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is crowned is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So there's three analogies that Paul uses here. The first is the soldier. And he, he, wants, uh, he distinguishes between following our commander-in-chief and the civilian pursuits. A soldier has to choose. The civilian pursuits could be anything. And the way that I thought of it is basically those things that seemingly everyone around us is doing, everyone else around us is doing. I think that would be the civilian pursuits. So we have a call on our lives, and we have these other things that also interest us or may be attractive to us, but when we follow Christ, he is that commander-in-chief, and he wants that to be there. And then for the athlete, any competition has rules and expectations that must be followed in order to not be disqualified. And that's the same for a disciple of Jesus Christ. He has expectations. The master, the teacher has requirements and expectations that he expects of us. And then the farmer. Farming is hard work, and he will enjoy the blessings of the harvest based on what he has planted. You don't harvest corn if you plant wheat. It just doesn't work that way, but it, it will be based on what is actually planted. Then, uh, jumping back to verse 2, um, he outlines how we should be intentional in teaching and training others what we have been taught. Paul isn't satisfied with training Timothy. He wants it to see it go two more generations. Paul is teaching and training Timothy, who he calls to teach faithful men in order so that they would be then able to teach others. Paul wants to see it go multiple, uh, multiple generations there. And I believe that that's, that's an important part of what Paul is calling Timothy to here as well. And so it's about, it's when we love God, we will desire and we will want to see these kinds of things coming out of our lives. It's the second aspect. Maturing disciples are 
the body of Christ. And if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, because we're going to read a number of verses there, and I know that it's a little bit harder to read up here on the screen. And you may want to underline something as we go. Jumping in at verse 12, 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body has, is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and are all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, and get this, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, that, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, and that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Maturing disciples are the body of Christ. Notice that last verse. They're not just part of the body of Christ. It says, you are the body of Christ. Not only that, God, that we, not only, we are placed in the body that God wants us. We like, whether we admit it or not, our individualism here in America. And it runs completely contrary to what Paul is teaching here in 1 Corinthians 12. In the first century, the Eastern cultures in, in that era, in that area of the world, both Jewish and pagan, so it would have been, uh, yeah, it didn't matter whether you were a Christian or not, there was a strong sense of group identity. Whereas we focus on the individual, in Bible times, in New Testament times, it was on the group. And family was one of those primary group units. One did not do things 
or make choices apart from the approval of the group or the family. The honor of the group or the family was more important than my individual opinion. That's why you saw arranged marriages. It was for the, what was deemed the best for the family. And I believe that's also why Jesus, in his call to the disciples, told, we read in several of the Gospels, that Jesus tells his disciples that they must forsake father, mother, brother, and sister. They had to, it was nearly unthinkable, but Jesus was calling these people and telling them that the loyalties to that family had to be severed in order to follow Jesus, to become his disciples. But then these same disciples were then adopted into another family, the family of God, the church, whose interests replaced that of their earthly family. And I think that that is, in essence, what Paul is describing here using the analogy of the human body and the church, and the body of Christ. The body of Christ is a family or a group of various members or organs working together to honor the head of this family, the head which is Jesus Christ. It is being and doing what Jesus wants that brings the most honor to Jesus Christ. It's not about our individual visibility or importance or any of that, but it's about altogether, collectively, pleasing and honoring Christ in all that we do. And I believe that, that we are the body of Christ, and that's what he's calling us uh, calling us to, to, to recognize that and to live that out in a way that honors the head. Thirdly, maturing disciples build up the church. If I was to boil it down to one thing, I would say that maturing disciples build, build up. Um, it would be this one item. I think these others are important as well, but I think that this really gets to the core of what it means to be, to mature as disciples. <clears throat> Reading from Ephesians 4, again a familiar passage of Scripture from uh, verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Notice, these gifts are given for the building up of the body of Christ. Then goes on. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, 
joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The second law of thermodynamics is often described as the law of increased entropy. Now that, I know that this is all, but basically what it's talking about, the, the amount, the quantity of matter or energy in the universe stays the same. However, the quality of that deteriorates over time. The natural result, if you look at our universe in so many ways, things aren't getting better. They're getting worse. And that's this law, second law of thermodynamics. The natural result of many things in our universe, left unattended and uncared for, will move from order into disorder and chaos. An example of this is I am amazed when there is a building or a house that is simply abandoned. How quickly will it just simply deteriorate? When somebody's living in it, that doesn't happen. I mean, I know that there's some care that goes into it as well, but it just, it just naturally will just deteriorate very quickly. God's design for the church is just the opposite of that, of this natural law. Over time, instead of disorder and chaos, as each member and part is working properly, the church or the body will grow and be built up in love. Because that's how God designed it to work. When it fails to work in this way, when parts aren't doing what they're supposed to be, when they're not working properly, that is when chaos, disorder, confusion, disillusionment come into the church. No church is perfect. It is comprised of human beings. And, but when those human beings are surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, I think the church can become what is otherwise just impossible. One way the church is strengthened and is built up is when there is intentional interaction and engagement with your brothers and sisters for the purpose of growth. It is so easy for us after church or when we meet, whenever, even in small groups, you name it, it's so easy and comfortable to talk about the weather, our jobs, uh, the political climate, the problems in the world, you name it. It's very easy to talk about these things. For some reason, it's less easy and less comfortable to discuss spiritual things, to talk about what we're struggling with, the questions we wrestle with, the spiritual aspects of our lives. I personally believe that every one of us could benefit by doing two things. One, find someone that we look up to spiritually and engage with them about spiritual matters. 
questions, doubts, fears, ambitions, desires, you name it. But just find somebody to talk about intentionally about spiritual things and where, where you are. And then in addition to that, find someone that may be less mature or experienced as a Christian than what you are. And in, spend time in them, um, giving, pouring into them into their lives and build them up. And in the process, you'll probably build yourself up as well. But encourage them and coach them and, and just give of yourself to them. The reality is you won't have all the answers for the questions they have, but walk with them in their journey and, and keep them pointed toward Jesus and God's word. I think that if we were intentional about focusing on this, we would be surprised what could happen to us spiritually because I, there's two things that are required in doing this, two very important aspects, and both of them are key to building up the church. The first is receiving input from fellow disciples that we may not always want to hear. It's both inviting that and hearing that. And then secondly, giving honest input to fellow disciples with the purpose of building them up. Neither of these are easy, but I think they are so important and they will build up, uh, they will build up when we do them. <clears throat> but the idea of, of intentionally investing in someone around you both for input and also to give and share what you have learned with others that may be able to benefit from it. There are a lot of verses in Scripture, and I've picked three more that I want to just have us think about a little bit, and these are loaded. First uh, Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We are to look for and find ways to encourage and build up brothers and sisters within the church. The tendency, and I will admit this for myself first, is to find and notice what is wrong, notice weaknesses identify faults, but rather we're instructed here that we should be focused on building up to encouraging to, and not tear down. It doesn't mean we ignore sin. Sin destroys, and it will never build up. But it does mean looking for those areas that we can encourage, that we can build up. Romans 15.2, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. And this is a tough one, I'll be honest. What about ourselves? Let each one of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. There is nothing in here for us. Nothing. And it's so much easier to act in a way that pleases ourselves and for our own good rather than that of the other person. And that's, Paul is just saying our focus needs to be on identifying ways to build up those people that are close to us. 
And then 1 Corinthians 10.23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. You know, the question we should be asking ourselves is whether our actions will build up or not build up the church. It's not about whether something is or is not permissible. It's about building up. Those things that build up the church are the right things. Those things that don't build up the church are not the right things. The fourth aspect is that maturing disciples will unify the church. Powerful words from Jesus in his prayer, John chapter 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as you, have, you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these I know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This prayer, John chapter 17, needs to be read slowly and carefully, and some of the, the words back and forth, the pronouns, I in him and me, and you, you have to kind of identify, put names to that rather than just the pronouns to really understand and to get at what he is saying here. But this is such a powerful prayer by Jesus to his Father on behalf of the disciples and all believers that come behind him. His prayer and desire is that everyone who believes, every Christian, will be one, will be unified in the way that the Trinity is unified. Now, oneness and unity does not mean sameness or no differences. I mean, look at the analogy of the body and we can see that. But our unity comes from our mutual love of God, love for God. And he goes on, uh, there's twice here, and I, had, I see I underlined the one here, but the reason is so that the world may know, and then up here also he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that God the Father gave Jesus has been given to believers, the church, to demonstrate 
that miraculous unity of becoming perfectly one for one purpose. And that purpose is to show the world and that the world might believe that who Jesus is and that he's there for them. The unity of the church or the disunity of the church, I think, is either the brightest light or the biggest blemish on Jesus Christ to the world. It will, when, when there is unity, it will draw people to him because it is something that is simply not found anywhere else. But when there's disunity, there is just no attraction whatsoever. Fifthly, maturing disciples serve others. From 1 Peter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. First of all, as Nate reminded us last week, loving others is not an optional or add-on feature for disciples of Jesus Christ. It is a key component for all believers. And he says that here, keep loving one another earnestly, even when it's difficult, even when it would be far easier to quit loving because they don't deserve it. We are to keep loving and keep loving earnestly. We talked about earlier a bit the gifts being used to build up. This is maybe just another way of saying the same thing. Every believer has been given a gift or gifts, but we don't use those gifts for our own benefit, but rather they are given to us in order that we can give to others, that we can serve others. As he states here, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Maturing disciples will find ways to serve others, to share what God has given them, to invest in the lives of others. Serving others includes both believers and unbelievers. It's not limited to within the church. As opportunities come, we serve those that we come in contact with. Look for opportunities. I know that some of you are familiar with the story of Rosaria Butterfield. She was a liberal English professor and a lesbian activist from Syracuse that was invited into a home of a pastor and his wife repeatedly just for fellowship, just to become friends, just to learn to know her. And they became friends. In 1999, she became a believer and is now married to a pastor and is a homeschool mom. Her life was literally upended by someone who was willing to reach out to her 
it was, it was the service, it was the reaching out, it was the investing in, it was the hospitality, it was the friendship that this pastor and his wife extended to her when she did not deserve it and showed her the truth of Christianity. We never need to fear about giving away or losing what God has given us because it's through sharing with others, through sharing our gift that God has given us, that he's going to expand that gift, enabling us to serve even more effectively. And that goes for each and every one of us here. We have been given a gift. We have been given an ability, an interest, something that can bless others when we share. It can mean looking for uh, and investing in just in the life of another that we talked about earlier. It may be uh, in a person that deserves it, in a, the life of a person who deserves it. It may be in the life of a person that doesn't deserve it. But it means looking for those and, and serving and giving. It also means that I will need to sacrifice my own time, my own resources, and my own comforts so that I can give something meaningful to another person. It's been said that our giving, how should I say, is we're only giving or serving to the extent that it hurts ourselves. I mean, there has to be, there, there is something that it costs us when we do that. But by serving others willingly and out of love, we honor and glorify God and Jesus Christ in ways that won't be known on this side of eternity or won't be fully known on this side of eternity. In conclusion, going back to 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Maturing disciples grow and will continue to grow. There's not a stopping the growing. Maturing disciples love God with their whole being. They are the body of Christ. They build up the church. They unify the church. They serve others, believers and unbelievers. I guess the challenge and... Uh, that I want to leave with you this morning to ponder, to think about. And this is, first of all, for myself. Sorry you can't read that, I will say it. Is the Holy Spirit identifying an area in my heart that has been hindering maturity in my life and hindering what Jesus wants to do in and through this group? Of disciples. What is it that Jesus is, that the Holy Spirit is pointing out in my heart that he would like to see changed? Now pause for a word of prayer and then I'll turn it over to Nate to, um, to dismiss the service and ask a blessing on the meal or if there's uh, additional comments that he'd like to make. Father, I pray this morning that um, you would allow your Holy Spirit to, to show us those areas in our life that 
may or may not be what you want them to be. And um, I pray that you would give us the heart to hear what you have to say to us this morning and that you would uh, enable us collectively to, uh, to mature and grow in ways that, that honor you, build up the church, and just show your love to the world around us. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.